Hey everyone, welcome back to the second edition of Hot SciComm Summer, a special summer podcast series where I talk with savvy science communicators to figure out how we can get science findings outside of academic circles more effectively. Today, I'm really excited to share my conversation with Meryl Horn. She's a producer at the podcast Science Versus, which is distributed by Gimlet and Spotify. And it's a terrific show. I, I was listening, I I've been a fan for years. Um, and they produce these fun episodes where they look at the state of the science for all kinds of timely topics. Um, truly, I mean, it's a great show. <laughs> you should just go back and listen to them all. And, and the, thing, the, the great thing about them is that even though they're really fun and punchy and easy to listen to, you're really struck by how tight and well-researched they are. So I wanted to know more about the process. Um, so like I said, I've been a fan of Science Versus for the last few years, and so I was really excited to get a peek behind the curtain from one of the producers on the team. And I was especially interested in talking with Meryl because she was someone who had begun as a PhD student doing neuroscience research and then moved into science communication as a career move after grad school. And kind of like we did with last week's episode with Joss Fong, this week we also picked a particular piece of work to focus on. We settled on a Science Versus episode that Merrill produced last year on Science Versus Burnout, inspired by the many ways that COVID has messed with how people do their jobs. The episode looks at what burnout is and why it happens, how working from home is wrapped up in burnout, and the potential promise of a four-day work week. It's great, as with all their stuff, so do check out that episode on burnout. So in our conversation, we talk about that episode, uh, we talk about how Merrill moved from research to science communication, and the building blocks of making engaging audio presentations of all things science. So here we go. So I'm trying to collect a bunch of different perspectives from people who've spent quite a bit of time in the science communication field in one medium or another from one vantage point or another, just to kind of like collect those perspectives and then put them out there as a resource for anyone who's interested. Um, so that's where I'm coming from. And I was really interested in your story in particular because you did start this from that academic track, right? Like you were a PhD student in neuroscience and now you're like professional work is in science communication. So can you give me a sense of like, why take that journey? Like, what did that look like for you? This, um, this PhD track that turned into a science communication track? Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I was doing my um, PhD in neuroscience at the University of California, San Francisco, and I liked my project, but I kind of knew I didn't want to stay in academia long term. And I had tried out some other things. I tried out industry, didn't really like that, mm. and was getting closer and closer to graduation and had no idea what I wanted to do afterwards. Um, but like all the, the while, I had been doing well, podcasting just with a group of other students and postdocs. And it was just like a, a club, like we met once a week and edited each other's work and interviewed scientists and just had fun with it. And it hadn't really occurred to me that I could actually do that as a job until I kind of had to start thinking, okay, like, what am I going to do? And there just, I just got lucky, basically, like there was an opening at Science Versus for a job when I was applying, when I had just basically finished and defended my thesis. And I ended up doing an internship there. And that led to now I'm a producer and I've been at Science Versus for about three, three years, I think. Yeah, four mm -hmm. years. And so, was, yeah. 
was there a seed of wanting to do something in the communication? Like when you entered grad school, was there even a thought in your mind that like, oh, it, what's cool is there are these people out there who are, you know, not professors, but they're still like in the science world? Or, or was it really not until that moment where you thought, oh, there's this thing <laughs> that exists? I had no idea that this even existed. Yeah, I... I didn't really realize that it could be a career. Like nothing in my graduate school training was really telling me like you could do science communication as a career. And I had done it like I first joined this club for kind of random reasons, actually. Like I just wanted to network with professors who were outside of my field. And I figured that would be a good way to just call up a stranger that I don't know and interview them. Um, And it wasn't until later that I kind of realized that, oh, actually, I had always had this interest in an audio and kind of creatively like, you know, putting together sound and making stories and um, just creating, doing something more creative. And so it, it kind of struck something that I realized I had always been interested in and just never realized that it was a career. Hmm. Um, when you say you'd always been interested, like what are the things like you, you were just listening to or you were making stuff or like what were the what were the signs? Like if we made the movie now, like what would we build into your story that would pay <laughs> off when you get this job at Science Versus? Oh, it's very corny, but I just have always <laughs> made like mixtapes. Like since hmm. I was a kid, I would like record songs from the radio on my little like uh, stereo and then pretend to be like a DJ and I would introduce different songs. And so I was always just playing with audio. Oh, I had like a talk girl. I don't know if you remember mm-hmm. talk boys. They're in the, um, the lost in New York, um, mm-hmm. home alone, <laughs> uh, movie. But, um, yeah, I just loved like playing with sound and putting it together in fun ways. I just, yeah, it's always been like a hobby, I guess. And then the the communication part. So I listened to an interview that you had done with the podcast you were involved with uh, as a student. Oh, yeah. Um, and at one point, the, the person asks you about the research you were doing in grad school, and you very quickly launch into a very easy to understand explanation of it, right? You're like, if you're a cell and you want to maintain a sense of balance, uh, and that was just what I wondered was... Like, is that kind of a mode that you were in at the time? Or was that really the product of sort of the practice of being in a science communication job to understand like, okay, I can't just fall into the jargon that I would have read in the papers, but I need to explain this in a more palatable way. It definitely took work to to do that. Like, I, I don't think that comes naturally for any scientist. You're so used to talking in jargon um, to other people who understand what you're talking about. And so I think it was only practicing, you know, doing this podcast that I had been flexing that muscle and then kind of realized that like, oh, for any other, I mean, even when you're in a conference or a lab meeting where people know what you're talking about, I think it's still more interesting (laughs) if you talk in a, like in a human way. So I think now, yeah, now it, it was just like a matter of practicing it and, um, yeah, finding new ways to to talk about science so that people really get it. Because I think it can be hard when you just launch into, there's a cell and these are the receptors and the, you know, homeostasis. It's easier as a human to follow along with a story if there's a protagonist. And so even just that simple step of saying, like, imagine you are a cell, it seems like it's easier for humans who are, you know, who have been storytellers for thousands of years to kind of latch on to that if it becomes a story. 
Are, are there like deliberate moves that you make like that? What well, you just sort of <laughs> tipped your hand a little bit and like there's a protagonist, right? Like, is that a choice you make where you go, let's make this into a story with with characters? Or do you find that you just sort of are throwing spaghetti at the wall and then you sort of find the way that ends up sounding the most intuitive? Yeah, I think that's one of the tricks we use. Like whenever we're interviewing academics now, we tend to try to get them to say things from the perspective of like, imagine you're a protein, what are you doing? Or imagine I'm one of the participants in your study. What would you tell me when I'm walking into the lab? What am I going to be doing? Um, and it just slows things down a little bit. I guess it makes it more visual too, because they say, you know, like podcasting is the most visual medium. Like you really need to paint a picture for people to stay with you. And so it helps to get, that's an, I guess just another trick is like getting lots of little visual details to help really explain either an experiment or, you know, a mechanism. Hmm. So, so you'll do some like coaching of the scientists that you're talking to, to kind of put them into that mode that's going to translate to radio. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully it doesn't feel too much like coaching, but we'll try to just ask questions in a way that makes them break out of their normal way of explaining it to other scientists and makes them think about, yeah, how, like, would I explain this if I were a cell? Like, what would I be looking at? And analogies are another really common way to to try to um, make something more just kind of intuitively understandable than just talking about the straight science itself. So, you know, using a lock and key instead of an antibody and a receptor, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and you, there's also the luxury of being able to pull just the moments where it all finally gels, right? Like in my experience of doing a little more long form versions of this, and you're sort of just kind of trying to be like, okay, let's try it again. <laughs> and uh, yeah. it, it just, it's harder to quite make that happen. Whereas if you're, if you can sort of like nudge someone and then they lock in and then you can just use that part. That's also a yeah. nice way to to build a fuller story and also get the person themselves rather than you talk to the scientist and then you have to come back and then write the narration to basically say what they're trying to say. But it's like, do you think it's better to get that straight from the person themselves? Yeah, I mean, I think it's rare that we'll use, you know like a whole paragraph or something of the scientists just straight talking. Usually we'll kind of jump in a lot and kind of help move it along. But um, even if it's just little things, like if we, I was talking to somebody yesterday about what this brain region, the nucleus accumbens does. And um, he gave like a couple just fun examples of like things that you might be doing that will trigger it. So he was listing off like, like if you're eating some good food, bam, if you're get $5, bam, like we'll, we'll probably just end up using that little bit and it'll be great. Cause it's like easy. It's digestible. It's like interesting audio. Cause he was saying like, bam, bam, bam a lot, which is just fun to listen to. Um, and then we'll probably in our own words, maybe say some, one of the more complicated things like, and in the study, they found that this brain region like lit up when the people were doing this activity like it's like i think yeah for some things it can be really hard to do that in the moment and for other things when you're just kind of making a list or saying something that's sort of more natural to say like a a human then we'll kind of pick and choose the the moments that you know we'll go into kind of maybe more detailed explanation versus using some fun you know flavor and color from from the interviewee and like any emotional reactions is great because that's what we want to get from the scientists is like what it felt like to actually be doing the work. Was it exciting when you got the results? That kind of storytelling that we have no idea, you know, how we would even say that. Mm -hmm. 
Is is there anything else? Because I, I I had I was going to ask about this interview process and like what are you looking for? Both I guess in the first step where you decide like who to reach out to, and then in the second step of like when I'm cutting, what is it that I'm going to pull? Like in the moment, like what am I listening for that ultimately is like that's the magic sauce that's going to make this great. Yeah. So for the first question, like who we end up interviewing, um, we usually look for if they're a good fit, obviously, like if they have published a paper about the topic um, is usually an easy way to narrow it down. Like if they can describe the experiments well, we call it if they're a good talker. Um, So basically, like if they're have if they can have some fun with it and they don't have to be like, hilarious or like amazing at the start, but as long as they're willing to kind of play along and like maybe try out an analogy, maybe try explaining something in a more basic way. Um, And also just like, you can kind of tell when you're, when you're talking to someone and you want to keep listening to them, like when you want to stay in that world. And so just kind of imagining like, do I want to keep listening to this person or am I kind of waiting for this? We do pre-interviews. So do I want to keep hearing this person talk for a whole you know, for the actual episode, or am I kind of just waiting to get off this call? And then we also try to get diverse um, scientists. And since most of the, you know, academia is still mostly white, um, cis men, it's really, I think, makes it a much more interesting show to listen to when we try really hard to break outside of that typical, um, yeah, framework and talk to people who are not just the typical person who you think of as like a scientist. Can I, in the pre-interview, like what, how do those usually go? Like, what, what is usually the the procedure there? Um, yeah, so we, pre-interviews, we ask them about if they have a study that they've published, um, just kind of basic information about that study, see if they um, are kind of how they talk about their work. But also we just use it for research. So we'll just ask them some background questions because in the beginning, we're usually trying to still sort out what is the science, like what is the consensus on this topic? And it's so much faster to just talk to the scientists than to, you know, it would take me a week to read so many reviews um, and to try to wrap my head around it myself versus talking to one good expert can basically summarize all of that information for you in half an hour. So, um, yeah, it's, those are super helpful. Nice. And um, then, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, should I talk about the other part, the, how to, what we listen to during the interview now? Yeah, that'd be great. Great. Um, so yeah, when, um, um, I'm just logging now, actually. And I, I think the moments I pull are just moments when you're kind of leaning in, we say a lot, when you're kind of wanting to, um, when you have an emotional reaction to something, um, if they say something funny, if they say something interesting, if they say something, um, yeah, emotional. Um, we'll pull down those moments. We'll pull down anything that helps really move the story along. So if we know we want to talk about a study that they did, then we'll really want to paint a whole scene around that. So any fun little details like we were talking about, about how they first got the idea to do the study, um, what it was like, you know, what did the experiments look like visually? What did, if it's like a brain scan study, what what did the people actually do in the brain scanner? Um, and then, yeah, any like big picture thoughts, I guess, they, that they have about what it all means is is usually helpful, too. I, I, I'm realizing that I jumped kind of straight in to the weeds <laughs> before I was going to actually ask to pull back just a second for folks yeah. who maybe don't know what Science Versus is. 
or what oh, you do yeah. on it. Uh, could you give sort of a brief overview of what the show is and what your role in it is? Yeah, yeah, of course. So um, Science Versus is a podcast uh, made by Gimlet Media and Spotify. And Wendy Zuckerman is the the host and executive producer. She started it back um, maybe six years ago now in Australia. And then it was moved to the United States. And the idea behind the show is to look at topics that are in the news and the zeitgeist, but from the perspective of science. And so we'll look at a topic um, I'll see, I'm doing an episode right now on ASMR, um, which is this thing that you watch a video online and you get these weird brain tingles. Um, we'll look at a topic that, you know, maybe people have heard about, but then look at the science behind it. So talk to the researchers who actually study the thing and see, and kind of answer the big questions about it. Um, and sometimes it's, it's called science versus because, I guess the idea is often like people have lots of opinions about X thing, but what is let's cut through those opinions and look at what the actual data says. And your role is as a producer. And what does yes, that yes. mean? So, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, my role is a producer. Um, that means that I'm the one who pitches an episode. So I come up with the idea for it. I do all of the initial research and um, talk to a bunch of scientists. I'll book the interviews. Sometimes I'll do the interviews. Sometimes our host or another producer does the interviews. And then I'll um, kind of carry the episode through all the way to publish week. So we, we do lots of edits on our show. I'll make like one version of the of the episode and then we'll do like a table read and we'll do that whole thing three times before we even get to the publish week. So it'll already kind of have had many revisions. And so the producers on our show is the one who kind of takes it through each one of those revisions. And then on publish week, we all kind of dive in and as a team um, tackle it together. So then the editor will start writing with us. Their host will start voicing it. And me, I'm still working on it too, of course, as a producer, um, doing the research, helping with writing, um, helping with with the kind of crafting it editorially. Um, yeah. And so, uh, and then, yeah, we just, the published week itself, we just kind of do a lot more of those revisions every single day is sort of a reworking of the entire episode where we kind of try to make it the best it can be. Oh, and then of course the sound engineer at the end, we have a, we're lucky in, at Gimlet where we have like sound engineers who actually make it sound amazing and put it with music and sound effects and all that. Hmm. So from pitch to people can listen to it i'm sure it varies but like roughly what's the timeline we're looking at for a normal episode uh, a couple months usually like three months not like that's constant maybe we'll be working on more than one episode during that time but um yeah it's, it's a few months and more recently we've been doing some episodes that are much faster turnarounds like during the we did a whole um, season when the pandemic first started on COVID-related topics. And for those episodes, we kind of smushed the whole process down to like just a few days in some cases because the research was, you know, happening so quickly or I guess the everything was changing so quickly that we felt like if we worked too long on an episode, it would already be outdated by the time we published it. And so... We, we have short, shortened the process for topics that are especially timely, and then it usually involves just the whole team jumping on at once. So when we're going to kind of put all our forces together, there's probably seven of us that are on the team. Um, then we can go much faster if we, if we need to. So it kind of sounds like 
it's sort of a process that plods along for a while as all the pieces come together. And then there's kind of like a frenzied final couple weeks <laughs> where it all actually becomes a real thing. Is that, is that fair? Basically, yeah. Yeah. Some are very frenzied. Some of them are like surprisingly chill, but it's usually some amount of like, yeah, frenziedness at the very, at the last haul. So, so what makes for a good science versus episode? Like when you're thinking about pitching topics, there's got to be plenty of things that seem fine and then you they sort of fall apart uh, as you start to work on it. Like what is kind of the hit mm-hmm. rate of uh, pitches to publication? Uh, I don't know. Maybe like a third of the episodes I pitched will get greenlit. Um, and yeah, it's hard. Sometimes I'll be pretty sure an episode will work and people won't like the rest of the team is kind of meh and other times I'll be kind of like, well, we could do this episode and everybody will love it. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's really like a hive mind process, but I guess the things that usually end up green, green lighting, uh, a pitch are if it's timely, if it's like in the zeitgeist, that matters a ton. Um, so if it's something that's been in the news, if it's something people are talking a lot about online, or if it's something that people have always kind of wanted to know about, like it can be, you know, an episode about like dieting, you know, whatever the the latest diet is. We're doing an episode on processed food this season. Like those aren't maybe necessarily especially like hot right now, mm-hmm. but it's sort of just an evergreen topic that people care a lot about, you know, diet uh, in general. So that that will help, too, if there's just like a wide appeal to something. Um, an episode on alcohol, just like drinking like that will probably get a lot of listens because it's just a lot of people want to know the science behind it. Um, and then if there is, it helps a lot if there is kind of clear scientific answers is another thing that's stops episodes in the past. Like I remember we tried to make an episode about personality tests at one point, which felt like it checked some of those boxes. Like people, I think, care about it. It would be kind of fun to you know, debunk like the Myers-Briggs vision of personality and get into the history of that. So it'd have some sort of surprising fun stuff. Then we were just having a really hard time coming up with like clear, surprising answers about what the like real science of personality is, because it seems like it's still actually sort of a work in progress and scientists have different views about or maybe you know more about this than me, but then we didn't get it right. But it felt like there were um, some, still a lot of differing opinions about like the best way to look at personality through the lens of science. And so it just felt like it would be a little unsatisfying in the end if we had this whole song and dance about how Myers-Briggs is wrong. But then we're like, and we have these different ideas for how personality might work, but we don't really know yet. And yeah, and they're not, they don't even sound that different, maybe from the thing you thought was true. So it's not that surprising. Yeah, you get, it gets like too nuanced and you're splitting hairs and people go like, so sorry, what is it true or is it not true? <laughs> yeah, we just want people to walk away with something concrete mm. at the end of the day that's like, oh, I learned this crazy thing that blah, 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 blah. Like, Yeah, because it kind of seems like like a, a, the structure of a science versus episode is often like, here we go. We're going to like pit science against some claim and we're going to kind of unpack like one to three versions of that claim and then check the boxes like how well do those claims fare in terms of the evidence and it's usually like you say sort of like a this one seems to hold water this one doesn't and that like well like we're sort of moderately sure of premise a and we're not quite so sure of premise b (laughs) like 
that that makes for probably less of a set. It, it's probably uh, the like. Do you do you hear from scientists who you talk to who are like, this is it's not that clear cut, right? Because the scientist in me goes like, well, no, you yeah. can't. None of these things will be easily wrapped <laughs> yeah. up by the end of thirty minutes. Um, and, and so I'm curious, like, I, you know, my, my own journey in this is often balancing those competing goals, right? There's like my colleagues who I want to make sure that I'm giving a fair shake at and representing accurately what the state of the science is. But then the listener who doesn't really care too much about like the real nitty gritty. And so it's like, where do you come out in the balance of that? Yeah. Yeah. That's something I think that is a struggle with every episode. Even the ones that feel a little bit more clear cut usually have some nuance in them. And you want to be careful not to get sucked into the thing that you know, the scientists are fighting about and keep reminding yourself, like, what do people just want to know? Like, and that often isn't the thing that the scientists are fighting about. Like, sometimes that helps because scientists will maybe fighting about this one issue, but they do agree on this other thing. And then we can just focus on the other thing. Um, But yeah, I'm trying to think of an example of where it's been tricky. Um, I remember for the alcohol episode we did, there was this big, still is, I guess, somewhat of a debate about whether drinking a little bit can help your cardiovascular system. And so we talked to scientists on both sides of the debate and against our better judgments, we did kind of get sucked into this science fight. And it's, yeah, it can be tricky because then you want to leave the listeners with something to take away from, even though in this case, I'm not sure if there really was a consensus. But we ended up like basically kind of making our, like, sometimes we'll just say it's put it in our own words. So we we make it clear that like scientists are still debating this, but here is as a show what we think. And so we make it clear that like when we do our best to make heads and tails of this, this is where we come down. And then it really helps the listener. Like they just want to know what to think. Like they just kind of want to have something to take away from it. And as long as we caveat it with like, yes, there is debate around this thing. But here's like we think there might be a small effect, but it's not as big as we used to think it was. And just kind of rely on in that case, there was like a couple meta analyses that we were really um, relying on that and felt nice because it was a meta analysis. It seems like pretty durable. Um, So it felt like we were using something to base our opinion on. Um, That was legit. But yeah, yeah, it's definitely tricky. You all should make a spinoff called Science Fights, and it's a bunch of pedantic <laughs> conflicts that no one cares about. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, that could be. We would have no trouble getting content for that. I feel yeah. like every lab has its own. Like these are the things that like the PI cares about, and they'll do their whole career just trying to prove somebody else wrong. Yeah, I definitely in teaching, I'll often be like, "All right, all right, everyone, buckle up, because we're about to get crazy," and they're like. So, sorry, what's the problem exactly? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I figured what we could also do to sort of get into the mindset of the pro- – we, we've kind of touched on a lot of the bases, but to kind of anchor a few of the thoughts about where these ideas come from, how you actually pull them off in sort of the grand scheme of things. Uh, we talked about this episode on burnout that you produced last season for Science Versus, um, which sort of has – you know, in a classic science versus setting, right? It's timely. People are talking about it. Um, it comments on work from home. And it kind of has this structure where there's a cold open of people quitting their jobs in a blaze of glory, then unpacking the sort of reasons why burnout even occurs, like what it is. Is it the stress kind of response? And then two, I think, main like substantive 
dives into the questions, which are working from home and what those implications are. Um, and then the benefits and drawbacks of a four-day work week, right? So from my yeah. vantage point, that's sort of what, what you arrived at. So what I'm curious is, what is it that you pitched, right? What did it look like on the day the idea was brought to the team? Yeah, this is a fun episode to talk about because it did change a lot. Um, like in the early days, it was not... Usually our pitches are pretty well formed, but in this case, because... We had been thinking about doing an episode about work for a long time. So until Publish Week, this was called Science versus Work. Um, and it was basically got the green light because of the pandemic, because everyone was talking about these big changes to work, like working from home. Um, so that we knew that would be a good topic, working from home. And there was a randomized controlled trial that has been done on it. So we thought that would be a good study to talk about. And then Kind of separately, we knew that the four-day work week was in the news a lot, and there was this big Icelandic trial that had come out um, recently. And so it was kind of, it, I feel like it got the green light because it was just so, a lot of people were talking about it, and we knew that there was some cool, interesting science to dig into but I didn't, we had a harder time with that episode just coming up with a framework that would like fit all of those things together and didn't realize until much later that burnout was this thing that could kind of link it into a, a whole story where you can kind of follow a thread through it. Yeah, because there are even parts like the four day work week also is a vehicle for talking about how meetings are inefficient, <laughs> which yeah. in re-listening to it, I was like, oh, there's like this little package about meetings that isn't really part of the bigger story, but it kind of like fits in here and it's something to talk about. Um, and so I guess the question then is like, how do, like, what is that process of, okay, green lights, basic idea of talking about work and a few basic ideas, like what is next for you to actually get the ball rolling? Yeah. So, um, well, we're just talking to scientists. So doing a ton of pre-interviews, um, and on that topic, it was a lot of people who weren't just professors, but people who were more kind of in the business world. So it was a little outside of our wheelhouse where a lot of the papers were like white papers from companies instead of just peer reviewed papers, which made me a little bit like Ooh, uncomfortable, but we kind of tried to make it clear in the episode when we were talking about peer reviewed literature versus like a survey done by a company. Um, and yeah, so usually our first step is, yeah, just to read all of the paper, all of the, you know, relevant papers about a topic and talk to all of the scientists that, um, we can about what, you know, the consensus is about a topic. Um, and we knew we were going to do working from home and the four day work week. So we sort of started there and then spent a while thinking about what would the third beat be. We usually do have like three beats to an episode, um, not like they have to have three beats, but it also just kind of helped us think about like, okay, what's going to put these two like units of a story together? And then eventually we realized that like the science of like burnout itself, like what is actually happening in the body when somebody is stressed out from work? That actually is something that is an interesting story. Like how, because for a scientist, I think you kind of know that like, yeah, stress affects the body and the brain. And it's sort of like, it doesn't sound that interesting at first, but then we found this professor who was just really great at talking about it, Wendy Suzuki, and that really helped Like when you have a scientist who can really break it down for the public and explain like what the stress response is, which maybe, you know, you've heard about like fight or flight before. And so it could, it could be a really boring uh, segment, but if you find a scientist who really makes it real and come to come alive and like the way she was describing 
like our body's distress response from like how it may have evolved in the first place where it's sort of this defense mechanism against physical danger. Um, like these these little signs of like a threat in your environment. Like I think she was talking about like a, a twig breaking and that setting your whole body into this sort of like amped up state. And then that is like similar to the reaction that our body gets from your boss asking you like, can you work another night shift? Like we need you to work another night shift. And that same kind of like amping up freezing response or not freezing, but you know, that same kind of stress response might happen. And then looking at, you know, the the brain studies and just all of the the newer science that we now know about how that really affects you. Um, and so that then became, okay, so burnout is real. You know, we can kind of acknowledge that, you know, I guess in an alternate universe, maybe the that would have been a debunk of burnout. Like everyone's talking about burnout right now, but it turns out we actually were more, more burnt out 50 years ago than we are today. You know, like that would have been interesting too, if actually people are reporting lower rates of burnout or, and maybe it doesn't actually have an effect on the body. Like maybe that would be weird, but like, maybe that was what the science would say. But in this case, no, it did confirm that more people are experiencing burnout now, or at least very high rates of people are experiencing burnout now. And that it has these effects on the body that scientists can, can measure. And then it was kind of like, okay, well, working from home, um, you know, how does that fit in to this picture was the next big kind of thing that we had to tackle. Um, since at first, like we kind of thought that one way is that we could have talked about working from home is that it's a solution to burnout because a lot of people do kind of talk about it that way. But then for those of us who have been working from home, I think there's a lot of people feel like, no, this is part of the problem. It's actually kind of, it has these downsides and, maybe that's also contributing to burnout. And so we wanted to kind of talk about it in a more nuanced way than just like, this is the solution. It's better for companies. You know, some people definitely like it. Um, it seems like it's actually more complicated than that. Like during the pandemic, a lot of people have not liked working from home. Um, and so we kind of, yeah, we wanted to try to talk about that in a nuanced way. Um, yeah. And then the last segment on the four day work week was fun since there is this one huge study that everyone was talking about in Iceland that just got misquoted a lot in the press. So the most obvious debunk there was that people kept using it as evidence that the four-day work week was good, but really it wasn't a trial of the four-day work week. What the experiment actually was, was just reducing the number of hours the employees worked, but maybe just by an hour every week. And so they would just like sign off an hour early on Fridays or at the most extreme, they worked uh, one hour less four days a week or five days a week. But it, it definitely wasn't really a 40 work week. Like that's not how the researchers who did the study talked about it. So that that was like a kind of, yeah, in one sense, kind of easy debunk. But then it also had interesting things to say, you know, once you get past that and look at what the what actually did happen. So, so you're saying the um, kind of temp, some loose template is a three beat arc. Um, yeah. And what I'm wondering is like, how exploratory are those first, you know, days, weeks, whatever of research and talking to people versus like the pitch includes these three beats and we're going to then like just support, find the support for the point that we're going to make or um, like find the evidence for the claim we want to interrogate right in other words versus i have absolutely no idea what these three beats will be i am completely open to whatever they might become and i just openly read and talk to people 
Um, what, what is what is your general approach there? It really depends on the episode. I think it's really rare that we'll know exactly what the three beats are and what we're going to say in each one of those when we're pitching. I'm not sure if that's ever happened. Um, I think there's always surprises once you start digging into the research that, like the thing I just told you about with the, the Iceland trial, we didn't even notice that until pretty late in the episode after we had already interviewed the scientist, which was... It's always too bad because you we interview the scientists pretty early on in the process, and sometimes that ends up being kind of annoying because then it won't be some of these topics are just so complicated. It takes us like weeks of reading reviews and like really digging in and getting other scientists' opinions before we really understand what the takeaways are going to be. And so then it's you know sometimes just at the you know the week before publish or publish week when we really decide what the takeaways are going to be. Um, but. Yeah, I think it it definitely changes a lot. It's pretty common that we'll we'll be surprised by what the episode actually ends up sounding like at the very end compared to what we thought it was going to be. So so one of the hallmarks of a science versus episode is the grand finale of how many citations are in that week's <laughs> episode. Uh in this case it was 102 and in as a listener before, I always kind of would hear that number and I'd go, "Is that right?" Hot- this was a 30 minute episode. Could there really be 102? And so what I had wondered is like how many of those citations are truly supporting claims that were made in the episode versus, well, we read 102 things, but we only really (laughs) talk about like a dozen of them. Uh, Yeah. When you say there are 102 citations, what, what are you referring to? That's a good question because yeah, I think we we started doing that as a sort of a uh, sort of a shorthand for just saying we have like we've done research <laughs> and it's just like a fun way to to get across that point where the number is a little arbitrary. I have to say, like I would say, one of the pitfalls of the count at the end of the show is that some of those are not peer reviewed citations. So if we're just supporting like. The fact that p- politicians are talking about a topic, we're not going to use a peer-reviewed, you know, study for that. We're going to use, you know, quotes from the politicians or something like that. So that's one pitfall. Um, another one is that in some cases we'll use like five reviews to back up one tiny little point. <laughs> and so it's like you'll hear a line and it sounds pretty straightforward, but we just really want to make sure as a you know show that we're getting the consensus across and maybe there is some debate among scientists. And so we've kind of looked into the research and we've done our homework and we just really want to make sure that what we're saying is reflecting the consensus. And so then we'll end up adding a ton of citations just for one little point. Um, I'm trying to think of other ways it's um, oh, sometimes we'll, we'll use the same paper in more than one citation because it'll have several different results in it. And so we'll use it to back up this one finding, but then we'll use it again. So theoretically, I think ideally what we would do <laughs> if we had infinite amount of time and patience is maybe go through and look just for the unique peer-reviewed citations, because I think that might be a better, you know, fact-based like assessment of how backed up by science something is, but like we're not going to do that. <laughs> so yeah. Well, that's the benefit of calling hands, them basically. citations and not references, right? Because I right, think, yeah, oh, this that's number true. Of references. It's a citation. Yeah. <laughs> so so I did look at the transcript for this, and it uh-huh. actually made me more impressed <laughs> at the oh. citation count because uh, it was very clear that it really was attached to specific client. And you'd read the transcript, and you go, "You say something that really is inconsequential," or like kind of a throwaway point but it sort it has like two citations to it uh and not only that but the references themselves 
nicely like quote the paper or like directly say like, this is why we feel comfortable making this claim based on this reference. Um, and I have to imagine that takes quite a bit more time to write an episode when you are very careful about kind of showing the paper trail behind every word on the page. Um, so it sort of brings me to the question of when it comes to actually write this thing, what does what does that process look like? Yeah. So one of the um, sages we haven't talked about is that we have an independent fact checker um, look at the script before we publish it. So yeah, when I'm writing it, you know, I'll add citations as I go. And then we'll have the week of publish is when we sort of make sure that everything has a citation on it, even the joke, you know, where we're just it's like, yeah, it's a throwaway line, but we just want to make sure everything is cited. <laughs> Um, we'll go back and then add citations to everything, often other people from the team. So it's not just the producer, but like multiple people will kind of pitch in and make sure everything has citations on it. But then after that, we have somebody who's not like directly part of the team, but we'll hire somebody outside of the team to call up the academics that we talk to and make sure that they feel comfortable with the way we've quoted them. And then they'll also look at each citation and make sure that the thing that we, the kind of the quote that we pulled from the paper is actually in the paper and that it backs up the thing that we're saying. Um, and so that helps that process along because then the fact checker doesn't have to go digging through the paper to try to find like, wait, how is this supporting that claim? They can just look at the quote that we pulled. Um, and it really keeps us honest because like, I remember when I was writing papers as a PhD student, like, I wouldn't go through this rigorous mm -hmm. process. Like, nobody <laughs> ends up fact-checking citations in mm -hmm. journals and can't remember how many times I've tried to look up a citation that supposedly supports a fact in a, you know, peer-reviewed publication. And then I go to that citation and it's like, what? Like, sometimes it's just the wrong citation or it doesn't actually support the thing that they're saying it does. And so it's funny because I feel like this work has actually been more like because this is more um checks and balances in the process to make sure that every citation is kind of uh yeah is useful and our listeners will call us out if we got something wrong so that's another incentive is that we'll you know have to make a correction obviously if, if something is wrong and we'll you know when it's helpful when that happens of course because sometimes we just will miss something tiny that you know we didn't even think yeah yeah, some, we'll, we'll often end up missing like something tiny, even with all of those checks and balances. Um, this is just hard to, when you're saying that many facts to get every single thing right. But yeah, the citations definitely help. And, and so in terms of uh, you've collected all of these references to put together the story. Um, I mean, we don't have to go through like, you know, day one, I sit at a blank screen. <laughs> but like, what what have you learned, I guess, over time, just to cut to like, you know, someone who might want to do this themselves. Mm -hmm. When it comes time to translating all of this research and interviewing that you've done into like a clear document that will then be read for the podcast, um, what, what have you learned about like best practices for pulling that off? I mean, that's like our whole show. It's, I guess it's, um, hmm. I'm trying to think of anything I haven't talked about um, like it's very dynamic. It's not like we we sit down and, and write the script because the first draft of the script is usually the like the biggest bottleneck to creating that first draft that people hear is just 
logging the tape, which is when you transcribe the interviews, pull down the selects, so the little bits of tape that people will hear, and make it into a story. And so for that first draft, it's usually just a frantic rush to put everything together and to try to write something comprehensible in between all the pieces of tape so that people can hear it. And I think with our show, we want to lead with what is the interesting tape, um, just like any podcast, really, because if it's not interesting, if it's not entertaining, then people won't listen in the first place. And so we're not really thinking about citations when we first start. We were thinking about what are the pieces of tape that are going to make people lean in. Um, and so that like ends up driving what the research ends up being, too, because if we you know, if the interviewee was amazing at talking about this one part of their study, that's the thing that we're going to focus on. And that's the thing that we're going to fact check the hell out of, because we want to make sure that we can talk about this really fun story that they told us rather than, I guess, from a scientific perspective, you wouldn't you know, that wouldn't be part of the equation. You would just say what you want to say and then find the sites. Yeah. Or see if it's true when you try to find sites to back it up. Um, but we're, I think, more led by what is the story? What is the interesting little bits of tape that we got that really make this like feel interesting and human and entertaining? And then like slowly we'll kind of, yeah, make sure that we're also telling people satisfying scientific conclusions, I guess, because if you go too far in that direction, like if you just focus on what the fun tape is without giving people satisfying answers, then it's also going to be annoying to listen to because sure, you might like laugh a lot and there might be lots of fun moments. But if the, if you're not actually answering people's questions about a topic, um, then it's not it's not going to be satisfying. And so, yeah, then we might, you know, end up doing a lot more research to try to get at some basic question like, how often does this thing work? How often does this type of therapy help people? How often does this, how does, how much does exercise really help you lose weight? Like just trying to find little, like solid tidbits of information that we can tell people um, that's really like concrete is something that we'll maybe end up taking a lot more research later on in the process once we, once we realize like what those questions are and what the answers are. That kind of also the, the idea of building around tape maybe answers another question I had, which is, when do you decide to go deep on one study? Uh, so I find that a challenge in sometimes when you're kind of making big points about things that are in the science world, you can sort of get caught up in being like, okay, let me walk you through the details of every study that has ever been done that gives us these insight. Or I just kind of say, I'm going to make a bunch of claims. Trust me, they're coming from the scientific record. But like, I'm just going to make the claim that this is true about the world. And so the balance that, mm -hmm. that you all strike is there's a lot of that, right? Here's sort of the grand sweeping view of this. And also, like, let's take a look at one of the ways we know that this is true. And so how do you decide what the one of the ways we know this is true is and how to convey that? Yeah, I think we... I, there, I guess there's two different things that that brings to mind for me. Like sometimes we know we want to base a whole interview around a study. And so we kind of know from the start of the um, interview, like this is why we're talking to this person. We know we're going to want to talk about their study on this one thing. Um, and so then it's pretty straightforward that we, during the interview, we get lots of, you know, detailed information about that study, what it felt like to do it. And I think it's pretty rare that we later end up cutting that. <laughs> like, usually that's a kind of a bad sign if we think we're going to spend a lot of time on this study. And then, um, we end up realizing that it's not actually that relevant and it happens, but you know, it's, it's kind of too bad. 
but then I think there's a more subtle way that we try to do that because, yeah, I mean, it, let's say it's maybe not the main purpose of the whole beat or segment, but we want to, we do want to mention, um, like I'm thinking of for the episode we produced on transgender kids and what's the best way to um, kind of support and do medical treatment for for trans kids. One of the sort of downsides to being on one of the medications that you take for too long called puberty blockers is, is that your bones don't keep developing at the same rate as people who are not on these puberty blockers. And so we debate for a while, I think we just had a sentence in there that was like, and studies have shown that for these kids, their bones aren't as strong as their peers. But then I think we did want to make it a little bit more um explain why we know that basically because it it does sort of just like if we do that too often and you just keep saying studies do show blah 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 it starts to feel like an infomercial or something like it's just you don't really it doesn't really stick with you um and so in this case i think we did we changed it to say something like yeah scientists have followed these kids and will study them for a few years and they'll measure their bone density and they'll find that their bones are um, not as strong as their peers. And so like that, just little, like couple more sentences does make you, maybe it sticks in your head a little bit more like, oh, okay, no, this is maybe, and this was the kind of the, one of the big downsides, I should say, of of affirmative care. Like generally, when you look at all the evidence together, it very much supports um, some kids for sure being on these medications anyway for mental health reasons. But um, it did strike us as like, oh, yeah, maybe we should just go into a touch more detail to really explain why we know this thing. Because as a science show, like, that's what the advantage is. Like, we can go into detail because we can read these studies and actually understand what they did and communicate that to the public. So why else, like, why else are we doing what we're doing if we're not kind of taking these deep dives and really just going into a little bit more detail about why people know certain things? It strikes me, too, that sometimes they make good stories, right? So, you know, in building an episode around interesting tape that you're getting from interviews. Part of that is like telling stories and having characters um, in the same way that we were saying, right? Cells can be a character in a story, right? Yeah. In conveying a study, right? It's kind of like a, an anecdote, right? And you you have to walk the line between being like, am I conveying this as like a case study that I just happen to like, oh, like some people do this versus like, well, no, like we're telling this as a story, but it is it checks all the boxes of a science <laughs> experiment. Um, I, I guess I'm just looking for your take on using studies as a storytelling device. Yeah, I think science like experiments are inherently like pr like good for storytelling because scientists literally like did something, <laughs> and like that is what makes a story is just like somebody doing something, and you know you start out with a question, you do a thing, and then you see what what happened and that's a story and so i think you, yeah we should be using that to our advantage and explaining what those little stories are nice um i want to be mindful of your time and so by way of wrapping up i wondered if we could just uh get any advice that you have having sort of made this transition from grad student to science communicator having had experience in both of those worlds if there is someone who's interested in making a leap like you made what would you tell them to do think about prepare for whatever yeah i think um i mean the thing that 
helped me was just getting experience as a grad student doing, um, making podcasts in my case. I don't know, you know, for other people could be writing or videos, but like just trying to get, even if it's just something you're doing on the side, um, trying to get some experience early on. And then when it comes time to actually, you know, look for, for, for jobs, it's tough. Like it's, it's pretty competitive, I would say. And so I don't want to make it sound like it's easy to like, it's, I think it would have been easier for me to find a postdoc for sure than to find a science communication paid internship. Um, but in the end, like if you, if you do set yourself apart, like you'll be a nice asset if you both have that research background, um, whether it's a PhD or just, you know, an ambitious, like, bachelor's degree like I don't think you need to have a PhD of course but um I think if you if you're good with the science and you're and you have some experience doing science communication then that will be a huge plus um and I think we'll set that's what set me apart at least from maybe other people who just had like a journalism background is like no there's lots of science shows that really need science like science savvy people who can read those you know peer-reviewed articles and make heads and tails of them like that that kind of combination of um, skills is, I think, what helped me. Um, but it's tough. Like, I think another thing that helps is just the fact that I was flexible with where we could move. So I ended up applying to roles both in San Francisco, where I lived, and New York and Boston. And so that helped me. And I'm not sure if that's good advice, because if you don't have that <laughs> flexibility, it's more like, oh, then it's good. It might be tougher. But now I, maybe it's different now because the more things are remote, um, it, it should be easier, hopefully, to to do that kind of thing. Um, we have interns. So if you're interested in working with Science Versus, um, keep an eye out because we have, you know, two interns every year. Um, we're always looking for people. And yeah, I mean, there, we haven't talked about, there is this whole um, other, like, I felt like for me, there is this uh, pathway, this kind of fork in the road where I could have either gone the journalism route or the PR route. And so, um, you know, public relations for like um, pharmaceutical companies, like I have a good friend who does science communication for 23andMe, um, that, that's a whole other separate route and I think could be interesting and, you know, um, if you're in, yeah, there, there is, we haven't talked about that at all yet. So I just, I just want to acknowledge that that's also a separate route. And for, for me, I feel lucky that I got into science journalism, but I would have definitely considered that if I, if I couldn't find an internship fast enough, um, that would get me paid, um, doing science journalism. Nice. Um, and in terms of advice for scientists who might just not want to become professional communicators, but just become a little more adept at speaking beyond the university system, are there any, I, I mean, some of this goes back to how you coach your interviewees when you're talking to them. Are there are there things that you would tell scientists about how they could connect with the general audience better? Yeah, I mean, I guess I do think it's helpful even just for even if you're just staying in academia and just giving talks at at seminars, like, you know, when you're in a seminar and the person is just sort of droning on and it's really hard to pay attention to what they're saying. Um, I feel like that's the majority of them, <laughs> if anything. And then, you know, when you go to a seminar where the person is just really excited to tell you about their work and will have fun analogies and maybe tell you some details about their personal life and um, it, it feels like you're talking to a friend rather than just hearing a oral version of their most recent paper. Um, and so I think 
it is super important for anybody to if you know if you want to have other people care about your work to to try explaining it like a you know a human being to try to say what made you interested in the in the topic um what's your personal connection to it what and even it does not doesn't go into your personal life but just saying like <laughs> why like telling it more like a narrative like why you did these experiments and when you were surprised to find certain things were true instead of just saying what the results were and you can still do just as good of a job communicating the science but you're also making it more human and so I, I guess like this kind of little tricks that we often use is just like pretend you're telling the story to like a 10 year old or maybe in this case is that might be a little too, you know, basic for scientists, but to a friend who is like interested in in this topic, but maybe doesn't know all of the, you know, the background that, you know, and then I think just imagining that will put you in a different mindset. You know, I used to even have like even just recording yourself um, is really tricky. So like when I'm recording, sometimes I'll like voice the kind of narration of the the podcast. And it's helpful when you're just like looking at a, a picture of one of your friends instead of just kind of like abstractly talking into the void. And so I don't know, maybe if you're actually interested in make, making a podcast, then that's a little random hint or <laughs> tip for for people. Yeah, that's great. Or even as you're practicing your talk, put put a picture of your friend yeah. up as you as you rehearse. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Nice. Well, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. This I'm so glad we were able to uh, find the time to make this work. And thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. This was really fun. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much to Meryl Horn for taking the time to share her and her team's process. There was a lot in there, so I hope you were taking notes. <laughs> I especially enjoyed her ideas for walking scientists through the process of expressing their own findings in a really plain way that people can get a handle on. So I'll be revisiting that part of our conversation for sure. This whole series on science communication is a special summer presentation of my podcast, Opinion Science, a show about the science of our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. You can subscribe any old place where they have podcasts, um, and you'll see throughout the summer on the Opinion Science feed these science communication episodes come out. Um, but once the fall hits, we'll be back to standard operating procedure and covering sort of generally the psychology of opinion. And be sure to check out opinionsciencepodcast.com for links to all the stuff that came up in this episode. And, you know, whoever you are, I hope you're enjoying the show. And I'm also hoping this summer series is going to reach folks with a keen interest in science communication or even just like becoming a better communicator in general. So please tell people about this podcast, post online, email a friend, anyone who would be interested in boosting their own communication skills especially scientists who would like to reach beyond academia. Okie doke. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we hear from David McCraney, host of the podcast You Are Not So Smart and author of the upcoming book How Minds Change. David was on an earlier episode of Opinion Science, but next week I'm sharing the part of our conversation that I haven't released yet. Ooh. Uh, and it's all about his approach to bringing psychology to the public in his capacity as a journalist. I always try to find the thing that allows you to understand that we're not going to just read research papers. I'm not just going to make, I'm not just going to turn this into a Wikipedia entry with jokes. This is going to be, <laughs> uh, this has to be a story uh, that you can connect to as a human being, because in the end, what I want to 
what I really want to explore is I'm exploring the human condition and I'm trying to uh, show that these are aspects of our shared humanity and from that there's a shared humility and from the shared humility there is a certain type of unity that I'm always searching for. 